You guys have a good Thanksgiving. Okay, good. Um, decided to preach again today. I thank you for letting me share the pulpit so much um, and for listening to me. <laughs> um, I enjoy being able to preach. I don't I get to do it as often, but I don't necessarily believe that's my calling, per se, here, uh, at least in a primary role. Um, I want to support Matt and that. As you can tell from last week, it was good to have him back. Um, but I'm going to set us up this week. Um, not Don't think of this week as an in-between series, okay? Primarily because we're continuing on in Luke next week. Um, but today, I believe, is going to set up where we're going for the next month as we continue through Christmas. Um, the passage that we're getting ready to go through today in Luke uh, kind of culminates a journey that we've been taking since about chapter 9 uh, in Luke, where we see that Jesus says, hey, Guys, we're all together now. It's time to start making our way towards Jerusalem. Um, I have things to do. And so we've been on the journey really for about 10 chapters now where we're walking through um, Jesus' ministry in Galilee in the sense that he is performing miracles. He's healing people. He's also teaching. uh, He's also preaching But it's in open spaces, it's in friendly environments. He doesn't have a ton of opposition, just some Pharisees uh, who kind of, you know, come against him here and there. But it's nothing super serious. Jesus has been kind of conveying to us really what his idea of the kingdom looks like. And unfortunately, all along, the people still have the wrong idea. And we're going to encounter that again today. But I think today, Jesus kind of puts his foot down on saying, hey, this is the way... It's going to be. When we get into Jerusalem, this is the way it's going to be. This is what is going to happen. This is who I am. This is what I came to do. Let's finish out this journey together. And so oftentimes, and particularly even in the holidays, it's just as they coincide, we picture Jesus being a uniter and not a divider. It's typically something that you hear. Jesus is all about unifying. Everybody should be inclusive. Uh, Jesus loves everybody, and, and, and some bits and pieces of it are true. Jesus does love everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his son. God desires that all should be saved, but we know that not everyone is. Both currently and in the past, we've seen people who absolutely reject Jesus. And so we know that there are some who will not know him. In fact, it looks like Scripture tells us that there are many who will not know him for it says that the road to destruction is broad and wide and many are on it but the road to life is narrow and few find their way and so when he says that i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except by me we see a jesus who's beginning to set himself as someone who's not necessarily inclusive he's not necessarily about uniting all men not all men will come to him he does tell us, though, to preach the gospel to the nations. So it's inclusive in the sense that it has to go to the whole world. But he's not a uniter in the sense that it's not going to be every single human being. There will be division. There will be strife amongst families, even over the name of Jesus. So as we enter into this chapter in chapter 19 and, and walk through here these last couple steps before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the center of the Judaism religion, of Jewish life, of Jewish um, culture, tradition, everything that that country stands for, that nation that has been since God called Abraham out. We enter into that land, and we see that Jesus has some things to set straight. So before we get there, let's, um, let's start at the top of the chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 19. And we remember back to Luke chapter 1, right? He says, I thought it good to give you an orderly account, right? But Luke is like an investigative reporter. He is giving details. He is giving um, exactly what he has heard and seen from these people. So he says in verse 1, He entered Jericho and was passing through, speaking of Jesus. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, 
Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all, all grumbled. For he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray real quick before we get into this. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, as we spent much of this morning reflecting on your death and knowing that it is coming soon in our text. Father, let us be thankful for the revelation you've given us in the word. And not just in the incarnation in Christ. Father, that we can see him as we can see you. But Father, for your written word as you have revealed yourself to us. Bringing yourself so low so as to be comprehended even remotely by us. And Father, we understand the majesty that this represents. Lord, in our text today, let me handle it faithfully. Father, let the gospel be clear. Father, let me not stand in the way of what you would have your word do. And we know it will not return void. And we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. So what's interesting is as Luke, our chapter divisions, as you've seen, are not necessarily the best. We've chosen to follow them just for the sake of organization. Um, some we've had to merge together. We're going to have to do that again in this next month. But Luke is coming out of a bunch of different stories, and he has just given us an example of a rich man in chapter 18. And he says in, uh, in verse 42 of chapter 18 that it's easier for a rich man or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And then we encounter another story immediately thereafter saying that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and specifically says was rich. So if we follow kind of the past here, as we've seen with um, the rich man and his servant Lazarus, right, a couple chapters ago, how he had good things on earth but ended up in hell, whereas Lazarus had nothing and ended up in heaven. So a rich man has failed to understand the gospel. We see that a rich man comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. I do these. Sell all your stuff and give it to the poor and follow me. And he went away dejected. So we have another rich man show up. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And also recalls um, the blind beggar before on how he was very poor, had nothing, yet God gave him everything in salvation. Now what's interesting is in here we have a contrast where a rich man finds salvation. So it's not simply, it's not impossible, as he says earlier, it's doable. And we're going to explore some of that in just a minute. So if you uh, look at the tax collector section of this, there's a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. We've talked about this before a long time ago. Um, who else was a tax collector in Jesus's entourage. Very good. Yes, Matthew or Levi. He was a tax collector, and all it took for that was for Jesus to walk up and say, yo, follow me. Okay. And he did. But we talked about what it means to be a tax collector, and if, if, if you're reading the Gospels, particularly Luke, because he is so appealing to the, to the Greeks and to the Romans, and you're devoid of history and, and not not setting in your mind of what's going on in the context, you're going to miss a lot of, of these different pieces about what actually is happening here. Zacchaeus should, by any accounts, never enter into heaven. Jesus should never, ever talk to this man. So Matthew, Levi, who was a tax collector, was just sitting at a table, and he can collect, if you remember, whatever he wants. He has to at least collect a certain percentage and give it to the government. But he has free reign to set the rate. He can set it 10, 20, 15, 20% higher than what the going rate is. And he gets to keep all of that. And not only that, but as a Jew, you're serving the Roman government by collecting taxes. It's incredibly anti-national. As you know, with the zealots and everybody, the Jews are incredibly national, and they still remain so today. Incredibly nationalistic. And so for a Jewish person to be in the taxing system is crazy in the first place. 
They're going to be rejected by their friends, by their neighbors, simply because they're complicit in being involved with the Roman government. But if you add on top that he's a chief tax collector, that's like the top of the, the pyramid scheme, all right? The more, the, the deeper you are into the system, the higher you're going to raise in, rise in the ranks. And so Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. And what's interesting is compared to Levi, in both of our stories, he's dealing with, Jesus is dealing with a tax collector. He's a guest in both of their homes. He's criticized for his association with both of them. And in conclusion, he offers a pronouncement of their salvation. It's exactly the same as Levi. Exactly the same. If you remember in Levi, as soon as he's saved, he does what? He goes and gets all of his friends and he brings them in and they have another party. We see radical transformation in a man's life and we see the exact same thing with Zacchaeus who's a chief tax collector and was incredibly, incredibly rich. So understanding the context completely, again, he's chief tax collector. It implicates him deeply in the corrupt system. And our takeaway for that is simply that no one can be privately righteous while participating in and profiting from a program that robs and crushes other persons. Or to a more broad extent, you can't be privately righteous and live publicly sinfully. If we're going to be privately righteous and try to, try to have some sort of relationship with Jesus, yet publicly we deny him, he says that he will deny us to the Father. So looking at Zacchaeus' life, there's no way that he could have been privately righteous because the outward appearance shows what really lies inside. And what's interesting is we begin this passage, and this leads us into our first point. It says in verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was, in, he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, he was about to pass that way. So we see that Zacchaeus has an intense desire to seek Jesus. An intense desire to even just see him, let alone to be involved with him. It's so intense that even as a chief tax collector, with the prestige and power and authority that comes with that, to be able to bring in the Roman army for someone simply not giving him what he demands. This short little man, which I have nothing in common with, um, <laughs> climbs a tree in a rope, climbs a tree in front of all these other adults, people that he is taking lots of money from, climbs a tree just to see Jesus. He risks ridicule, embarrassment, shame. But we find that ultimately that Jesus is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. So our first point today is Jesus came to seek us. Jesus came to seek us. So often we think we're the ones doing the seeking. Towards the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s, the big thing in churches was to be seeker sensitive. Uh, we wanted to create programs. We wanted to create services. Um, this is talking about church leadership. We wanted to create an environment that was sensitive to people seeking Jesus. And I think the great pitfall of that is we failed to understand all along that Jesus is the one who sought us. Jesus is the one who calls us. It's one thing to simply make an environment nice to make sure that we have heat, to have some decent lighting so it's not just fluorescence. It's one thing to do that type thing. It's another to change our message, trying to make Jesus look more appealing. And even today, I'm tempted to do that in a coming passage. It's so easy for us to try to cover up some of what we would say is Jesus' flaws, or he's a little harsh, or he's divisive, or he brings truth in such a way that is hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to connect with. And so we say that we're simply seeking Jesus. And ultimately, I think if you are a believer today, you come to find that Jesus was seeking you all along. Even before you were remotely interested in him, Jesus sought you. And where do I get that from? 
If you look in verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We've told you before that salvation is completely out of your hands. We contribute nothing to it. Our response is simply a reaction to what Christ has done within us. Now, where, do, where does our personal involvement come in on that? I, I don't know how to clearly, clearly articulate this. I can explain a bunch of different pieces to it. Um, I don't know that that's going to be helpful. All I know is that scripture tells us to is to <laughs> profess Jesus as Lord and repent of our sins. How do you get to that point? Jesus is doing all the work behind the scenes. The Holy Spirit is working on our hearts. And the key that seems to unlock all that is an understanding of sin. An understanding of sin. You can't take communion if you don't understand what those two pieces mean. Now, I certainly don't understand the extent of my sin now. I know that I am saved, and I hope to persevere in that. I also know that Jesus will finish what he started, and I can find hope and comfort in that. But I know that there's a personal piece to it where my understanding of my sin has to be real if I'm going to truly repent. I can't even... Ask my wife for forgiveness if I don't know how I hurt her. I certainly can't repent of it if I'm not aware of it. I can't grieve it if I don't even know that it's there. We have to see our sin. If you want to know who Jesus is, you have to pray that he will show you your sin. And he has done that in his word and the law before and in his coming and in his teaching. He shows us our sin. And I am made more aware of it every day so that I can repent again and accept his grace anew. I think that's the beauty of communion, is that we understand that the body being broken, the blood being poured out, was for each and every sin. And last week, Matt was talking about how we don't have to carry that with us anymore. It has been nailed to the cross. There is no more wrath for us. It has all been poured out on Jesus. Sin has been defeated. Death no longer reigns. We have freedom, but you have to understand it. You have to see it. You have to know that you need a Savior. Or you're missing the entire point. Zacchaeus knew that he needed a Savior. He knew that Jesus was coming. He sought him out only to find that Jesus was seeking him all along. Jesus walks right up to him says, Come down. I must stay at your house. Not may I. I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down, and when they saw it, they grumbled. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So it's not just an intense desire to see Jesus and seek him, but it's an intense desire to respond to the work of Jesus in his life. Some people would say that Zacchaeus giving away half of his belongings and giving fourfold what he defrauded as he's trying to earn his salvation. I don't think the text points to that. Just because it says, Jesus says in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house, after him doing that action does not mean cause and effect. Understand that. Jesus' response of salvation is in response to the evidence of salvation in Zacchaeus' life. See this. So the law requires certain percentages for restitution, Okay. If you owed money to somebody, if you defrauded somebody, if you did any kind of crime and you had to pay them back, there was a certain fee, stipulation for whatever you defrauded. Now, if you owed somebody restitution and it was voluntary, you say, I, I cheated this man out of his money, I want to repay, then all that was asked was the original amount plus 20%. That was voluntary restitution, the original amount plus 20%. If it was compulsory... As in the, the government had to come in and say, you need to repay this man, you need to give restitution, and it was compelled of them, then they would at least double the original amount. Depending on the offense, it would be four or fivefold. But at least double. 
And here, nothing is required of Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't say anything except, I must go to your house today. And he offers half of everything that he has. It's probably a substantial amount. Half. And then on top of that, out of what is remaining, anything that he defrauded. He says if, which I think is a little amusing. Um, He did defraud people. If I defrauded anybody, basically who I have defrauded, I will repay fourfold. So he goes twice as much as even a compelled amount would be. How do you explain that? How do you explain a man who has everything that he could want, who has power, authority, similar to the man in the previous chapter? How do you have a man like that who can't sell all his possessions and follow me, and then another man who on his own offers half plus repaying fourfold? One man was transformed by the gospel and the other one wasn't. That's the only, only explanation. And so if that's the context, then what's the meaning? Luke's gospel has been a showcase of the joining of the gospel of grace to repentance. Everything that we see in Luke, he is always taking grace and the gospel of grace and joining it to repentance. And so this generous restitution is itself evidence of the radically uh, changing power of grace of Jesus' good news to him. The fact that this repentance is what it is is evidence of the change of the grace that Jesus has brought into his life. So grace comes and repentance follows every time in Luke if grace follows. For the rich man, there was no grace given. There is no repentance following. So repentance bears fruit. This was made clearly uh, as early as chapter 3 when soldiers and tax collectors came to John the Baptist and asked him, what shall we do? They came to John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 10 through 14, and said, what, what shall we do? If we're to be followers of this man that you are proclaiming, what shall we do? Grace has come and change must follow. Repentance must follow. So in Luke 19, 1 through 10, in the story of Zacchaeus, there's therefore a story of the salvation of a man who was rich and a tax collector. That completely contrasts 18, 24 through 27. Now, notice some pieces of his salvation. It's not just a man coming to Christ. Because we know that Scripture says that when one man or one chief comes back to the fold, there's a party in heaven, right? All the angels are going crazy as one man has been restored. That's awesome. We can celebrate that. We do celebrate that. But there's more to this salvation. You understand the, the different components of salvation and the effects that your repentance will have. In Zacchaeus' case, his salvation has personal His whole household was saved. The gospel came into his family's life because of him. In fact, even in our culture, we find that if we can reach the man in a relationship, the rest of the household will follow. But if we only reach the woman, typically them and maybe a kid or two will come to Christ. Men have influence over their families. They are the leaders. And in this case, Zacchaeus, as the head hold of his house, brings about gospel change in his entire family's life. So it has personal dimensions. It has domestic dimensions. Um, I'm sorry, that, that's his home. His personal would be him. His domestic would be his family. It has a social condition. The people around him knew that Jesus went to his home, a tax collector. That God came to that man. All of a sudden, they're having to make a decision. Who is God? If he claims to be the Messiah and that's what he does, and then that's what happens to that man, what do I do with that? All these people have to ask questions of that. And then it even has an economic dimension. Can you imagine the can you imagine the reaction of all the poor people that are suddenly inheriting half of his entire wealth? What does that do to a community? What does that do when the richest man in the city gives away half of his belongings? And then to those that were defrauded to get, receive fourfold. How does that change a city? How does that change people's lives? Repentance has many dimensions. And so saved here is translated not just to saving of the soul. It's he's made well. He's healed. He's made whole. It is a complete and holistic transformation of his life. Luke would object to confining the word to a condition of just the soul. 
there's more going on here than just simply his stance before God. It has changed him and everything about him and even those around him. And so we find that the whole life is affected by Jesus' ministry. And it's a foretaste of the complete reign of God. It's not simply now we're members of the kingdom, but we are sons and daughters of the king. It's a complete whole transformation of both the body and the soul. It's a foretaste of what's coming when God reigns over everything in the new kingdom. So finally we see that Jesus' visit to Zacchaeus was not a detour. It was the very purpose of the journey. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And praise God, he came to seek us. You listen to our first song that we sang today. You saw us running. We had no hope. And he still intervened. He came to us. Our Emmanuel, God with us, was born. He came to be with us. When we could not go to him, he came to us. Praise God that he came to seek us. So what does this mean for us when we look at the story of Zacchaeus? We know the children's song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. I was toying around with Robbie and Greg doing like a rock version of that. It would have been sweet. Um, Didn't happen. We'll see. Um, It ends for, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. We're missing a big piece of that. Yes, Jesus came to seek us. We see the fruit of the change in Zacchaeus' life. And so for us, if we're looking at this rich man, you say, I'm not rich. I'm not influential. I don't have power. I'm tall. I don't look like Zacchaeus. What do we have to do? We simply understand that grace brings about repentance. So if you today think that you are a follower of Christ, if you think that you have possession of the future kingdom in the Son, yet you see no repentance in your life, if people around you cannot attest to change in your life, you have no grace. Faith is not yours. As you've seen, you don't have to stay there. This man, too, was a son of Abraham in verse 9. There is still time. Jesus is seeking us. Pray, beg God to show you your sin. Believer, if you see repentance in your life, if you see change happening, If you see repentance coming because of grace, live in that repentance. Understand the ramifications it has for the body, for your family, for our city. You look at our vision. What is a vision of Renovation Church? Now it's been in your paper the past seven weeks. See, the gospel transform lives and our, what, selves. looking at past week's notes. In ourselves, in our church, in our city, in our world, by living out our identities and our gospel rhythms. If you know your identities, live them out in your rhythms. Clever, huh? That's all he's doing. His identity changed and he lived as a result of that change. To our second point, we must seek others. Jesus seeks us, but we must respond in seeking others. Others, if we know that Jesus did something, it requires something of us. Because he is who he is, we have to live in a certain way. And because he did what he did, we have to live accordingly. There's some response that happens. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Notice the kind. He was near to Jerusalem. We're almost there. He was just in Jericho. We're getting near to Jerusalem. So the people, the context is changing all around him. He was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he has incredible intent in verse 11. We'll talk about that again in just a second. He said in verse 12, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16, the first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And a second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, this is an intense passage, okay? It's, let's break it down a little bit, all right? Let's understand the context first. There's two parables happening right here in one passage. Two parables. There's two misperceptions. And there's two audiences. Two parables for two misperceptions for two audiences. So to close out the context, there's, first of all, the two audiences would be these. Those who are committed and those who are not. It's pretty simple. But much like I am up here today with two audiences, those who are believers and those who are not, with the potential every time to have that, just as when you go to your workplace where there are people who are believers and there are people who are not, two audiences. I have to address what I say, as I did even in the first point, to both audiences. Some are to the same, to both at the same time, and some are separate. It's different applications depending on who you are, depending on what your identity is. And so there are two types of people with Jesus. There are those that are the disciples and those that have been following him earnestly and following him in his ministry. But at the same time, there are also those who have heard about Jesus and are simply just kind of checking in. They may be hit or miss. They're, they're here and then they're gone. Later, it depends. But there's clearly a group that is following Jesus and other people who kind of fill in. Those two audiences. Let's talk about the meaning. I'm kind of defining a little bit what's going on. Amina, uh, just for you to kind of get an idea of what's going on here, is about three and a half months worth of wages. It's 100 days, basically. 100 drachmas, and a drachma is a day's wage. Uh, so amina is equal to 100 drachmas, and a drachma is equal to one wage. So amina is 100 days worth of work. That's about three and a half, and if you cut off your weekends, that's four months wages. That's not a small amount of money. And this ruler is going to claim for him this kingdom that is being given to him. And while he's away, he calls ten servants and gives each of them one mina. And says, do business for me until I return. And then we'll give an account. So that, that's kind of what they're doing. Does it make sense? Con context? All right. Here's the meaning. The first misperception. So you have two audiences, two misperceptions, two parables. First misperception is this. Some in his following thought that the kingdom would appear immediately. And we see that in verse... 11. He says, because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's one misperception. They assumed that all the benefits, the freedom, the joy, the peace, which they associated with the kingdom of God was about to be theirs very, very, very soon. Okay? Particularly as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, the center of everything that goes on in the Jewish faith. And what they're going to find, in fact, is that soon they're going to experience Jesus going away. He's going to leave, and he won't return until the reign of God is complete. So they think that the reign of God through the Messiah is going to come now. It's a misperception of an understanding of who Jesus is and what his mission is. They think it's getting ready to come now, and everything that comes with that, joy, peace, comfort, and victory, will come immediately, and it will be theirs now. And he proceeds to tell this parable, saying a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself the kingdom and then returned. 
I'm going away. I'm not bringing this now. It is not yet time. I'm going away to receive for myself a kingdom. And when I come back, then it will be yours. The second misperception. Some thought that somehow Jerusalem is the key to the kingdom's arrival. So we see in the explanation verse of verse 11, because he was near to Jerusalem and because, so there's your second one, the conjunction uniting two separate clauses. And the first one is that they think that Jerusalem is somehow the key to the kingdom's arrival. And Jerusalem is central, even for Luke. It's not just central in the Jewish faith, but even as we've explored Luke, Jerusalem's a big deal, and it will continue to be. And particularly when we jump into Acts, and we see how the disciples, or the apostles particularly, handled Jerusalem, both the main church being there. We see Paul collecting an offering for the church of Jerusalem. It is central. I mean, they're not wrong in that. But it's not essential in and of itself. It's important for the unfolding of God's plan for the nations. It's not the only place to go as Mecca would be for Islam. Whereas Islam is meant for Mecca, Jerusalem is meant for the nations. The second part of that is it will begin in Jerusalem, but what Jesus is about will not end in Jerusalem. So therefore his followers are not to take what will soon transpire in the city as a final uh, ending. It's a chapter that will end, but not the story. What's interesting is for Luke, this was written, Luke was written after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so we know that Jerusalem can't be a key part, or he would have said, it's all messed up, what happened? It's a bit of a revisionistic history that would have had to answer the question. But Jesus clearly does not mean that Jerusalem is the only center and only hope because it was shortly afterwards destroyed. So there's two audiences, two misperceptions. Finally, the two parables. What are we talking about here? The first parable is this. The king goes away to receive a kingdom. Some people don't like it, and they protest. The king returns victorious, and he orders that the dissenters be killed in front of him. It's pretty harsh. Um, Why? (laughs) There's going to be three types of people in this parable. The first is the faithful servants. There's two of those. The second is the unfaithful servant. And the third is the dissenters. And we're talking about the kingdom of God. This entire parable is about the kingdom. Why must we seek others? Because there are people who simply will oppose God. There are people who will oppose God. And the same three people that we find in this parable are echoed in the final judgment. This has an eschatological aspect to it. This is speaking also of the final judgment. Those who did not want him to reign over them will be brought and slaughtered. They will live in eternal death. There is a day when they will not get to say, yes, rule over me anymore. The second parable, which is the main chunk of this text, is this. It's a call for faithfulness and accountability between the departure and the return of the Lord. So we know that the king is leaving to receive for himself a kingdom, and there's a time where he's coming back. And for us, in the meantime, we must live accountably and faithfully. What's interesting is that the disciples, well, in this case at least, the servants here in the parable are not charged with just keeping it safe. What does he tell them to do? Do business, make more, make money while I'm gone. It's not just take care of it. And so for us, when Jesus leaves, what is the Great Commission? Go! Go into all the world. Give what you have. Make disciples. They're not just charged with keeping good theology. They're not just charged with keeping the gospel and protecting it. They're supposed to give it away. There's certainly an aspect of guarding it, but you have to guard what you're giving. It's not just to keep safe what was entrusted to them. They are to multiply it. And sure, there are risks involved. To be sure, no one makes ten minas from one or five from one without some risk. 
I mean, to multiply tenfold what you had certainly takes a good amount of risk, even fivefold. And what's crazy is even the third servant could have made some gains, if even in a safe manner, if he had deposited it in the bank. But silence and inactivity are inexcusable when the business is so urgent and the commission so clear. The third servant, he says, could have put the money in the bank and he could have at least collected interest. Are there safe ways to go about this business? Yeah. You'll get less of a return, but at least you're getting something. To sit and do nothing and to be silent is absolutely inexcusable. And so obviously the application for us is we've been entrusted with the gospel. It's not just three and a half months worth of wages. The same thing that we just saw transform Zacchaeus' life. If we've been entrusted as believers with the gospel, we have to give it away. We seek others as representatives of God. He is seeking them and we seek others. Found people, find people. And so for us, we can look at this story and this parable and see very clearly, we've been given great riches. And we're told to do business, be faithful, multiply. And when he comes back, he gives a reward according to what they want and what they have done. And what's interesting is when you look at the first servant, and there's ten, and obviously good storytelling is not going to go through all ten, right? We just have the differentiations we need. So Jesus only gives us three examples. And so for the first one, he's praised, and he's given ten cities to look over. Ten cities. Now suddenly, giving back those ten minas that you made, particularly the nine that you earned, isn't such a big deal when you now have authority over ten cities. Even five. You made four minas. You made a, a year's worth of wages. And give it to this man. And he gives you five cities to look over. What does it cost you for salvation? It wasn't even your money to earn what you did good in the first place. And then you give that back even, and he gives you so, so, so much more. But then we get to the third servant, and he says, I was afraid of you, and you were a severe man. So I did not do what you asked. I just kept it safe. What's crazy is we have people that would say, God of the Old Testament, that's God? That guy's crazy. People look at Jesus on the cross and call it uh, cosmic child abuse. We look at some of the stories even here of what we know will happen at judgment when those who are not in Christ come before the throne, are found wanting, and are killed. But not killed and then nothing. Hell, forever. That's an intense God. It doesn't sound nice. But even in this parable, he says, you know that I'm like that. Why would you even respond the way that you did? I'm going to condemn you with your own words. If I am, in fact, like this, why would you not at least do the safe bet? Just make interest. I'll be really disappointed. But at least you will have obeyed me. Now you're inviting judgment on yourself by absolutely disobeying me. It doesn't even make sense. Let alone it's not even in keeping with who this man is. We look at the king. Is he a harsh and severe man? No, he... He praises the first servant, and he gives him ten cities. There's not as much praise for the man who had five, but he's given five cities. If he was harsh and severe, he would have taken the money and not given them anything. So it's clear that this third servant doesn't even know who the king is. And so who is he to make judgments over who the king is? And you're going to find in your life that there are people who do not understand God and do not know Him and are going to make pronouncements about Him that have no business doing that because they don't even remotely know Him. It doesn't sound too far from reality. You'll see that all the time. The key when it comes to this is that we know what God looks like. 
the first two servants know who he is. They have an understanding of the king, and they respond faithfully, and they're rewarded accordingly. Now, we don't necessarily know in verse 26 who the I tell you is, whether it's the king or Jesus, but it really doesn't matter because the king is Jesus. Whether this can be taken absolutely literally in the parable versus whether we should take it absolutely literal for us now is also not really relevant. The point is this, he who has will be given more, but he who has not, even that will be taken away from him. Why? Because the only thing that matters is God. He who has, has God, and more of him will be given. He who has not, will never have him. That is the essence of hell. It is not the fire. It is not the darkness. It is not the everlasting torment. It is the eternal separation from God. If you want to know that on a very, 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 very human, mild level, imagine your favorite food or dessert. Pizza. You have the most amazing pizza ever, and it's been sitting right here the entire time. And for the rest of your life, you will look at it, and you will never, ever be able to have it. You really want it, you desire it, but you can never have it. Worse yet, you can't even see it. You just know it's there. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You can't hear the pepperoni still sizzling. You can't touch it. You can never partake. Ever. Hell is not just about the fire. There will be torment there. But the worst part of it is never being able to understand, see, or know God. And you say, well, I don't even know God now. Not really that big of a deal. Is it just the fire then? I mean, I don't know God. No, everyone here on earth for our time here is common grace, all right? God has given a certain amount of grace to all men to allow you to continue to breathe, even to keep things from happening to you. He is in absolute control over everything. He holds you in his hand. He upholds the, the universe by the word of his power. We all have a certain amount of grace given to us now. But after judgment, you will no longer be given that. If you think you don't know God now, that's different. Absolutely no grace forever. And the danger and tragedy to this is that we can think that we have grace, but we don't. The president and founder of TBN, the Trinity Broadcast Network, just died this past weekend. And... Many Christians are celebrating that. Um, am I glad that there is no longer a false teacher around? Yes. I'd prefer that he had just quit. I don't want that man to die. And what we find now is a man who has been proclaiming and facilitating false teaching to the nations now rests in eternal judgment and damnation. And we can't celebrate that. There's never a time to celebrate a life being lost. And so we find now a man who doesn't have any time left. He won't know God. He never did. So what do we do with that? We seek people. We don't give up. Whether they're a false teacher, whether they are actively against God, they're one of the dissenters, or whether there's somebody who just doesn't know God, they think they do. They think he's a severe man, but he's not. They don't know him like we know him. We take that gospel to them. So as we move towards the end here, we see in verse 28, he says, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And so we see... Jesus having completed, if you will, this era of his ministry, and we're moving on to the next. So behind Jesus and the twelve are Galilee and its synagogues, its table talk and sermons in open country, its seaside audiences, and his desperately poor and ill pressing upon him at the Sabbath sunset. Now they have reached Jerusalem with its temple, with its chief priests and elders, and with Pontius Pilate, who comes on major feast days from his permanent quarters 
in Caesarea. He has ample military support behind him in case national fervor and religious fanaticism threatens the Roman peace. Has anybody not seen the movie Gladiator? Okay, awesome. You know when he's doing all his fighting in the open country, they have the backwoods arenas and all that. Everybody loves him. It's all going great. I mean, he's killing people, but like he's on his way, right? He's doing, he's fighting for, for his family, all that stuff. But then he ultimately has to go to Rome. You remember the scene when he walks in and you see all the people, you see the Colosseum towering overwards. And all of a sudden, a great man is made very small. All the fun stuff, all the success before doesn't matter anymore. You're walking into great, great tribulation. That is Jesus leaving Galilee, leaving the seaside audiences, people loving him, begging him for healing. He's getting ready to walk into great tribulation of people who will oppose him fiercely and ultimately turn their back on him and call for his death. It's changing. So finally, what do we do? We look at the rest of this passage and know that we're running out of time. We are running out of time. Not just in my preaching, uh, which I know it's 1230 now. Um, But we're running out of time. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's work backwards through this text. In verse 40, he does not do what the Pharisees ask. He does not rebuke his disciples. He says, they're doing it right. If they didn't say what they're saying, then even the stones would cry out. And so know this. If Jesus sought us and we're seeking others, but we're running out of time, there's an urgency and an importance to the mission that he's given us. Inactivity and silence are absolutely unacceptable when it comes to seeking and saving the lost. And we should know that if we don't cry out, even the rocks will. Understand that salvation, like it doesn't just affect you and your change in front of God, but it changes everything about you and those around you. It changes the world, creation. Creation has fallen and is being restored through the work of Christ. As the kingdom comes, we're restoring the earth. And so even the stones would cry out. Understand that our witness, our, the Christian witness, will prevail. You may be opposed but the Christian witness will prevail. Jesus does not rebuke his disciples. If we don't proclaim, then the very rocks will. Pulling back to our previous misperceptions, this is a king that they're proclaiming. In verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But what does he bring with him? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's the king of peace. Is he a uniter? He has not been before, and he certainly won't be going forward. He brings a different type of peace, not the militaristic peace that they wanted, where they would have victory over the Romans and nationalistic pride. He brings a peace to troubled souls. He brings a peace to people who will live without him should they reject him. Verse 41 going on, And when he drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is Jesus addressing Jerusalem as a whole. 
he's riding up to the city and he sees it. And this is his lament. So the city, Jerusalem, is blind to its own need for repentance and forgiveness of sin. And to the fact that in Jesus, God visited the city with an offer of peace. The offer was rejected and Israel chose to take up arms against Rome. Outbreaks of violence occurred intermittently until an open war which brought about the fall of the city and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And by the time Luke writes this, that war was already history. And we find more than any that this passage is certainly hindsight is 2020. And so Luke, having penned this section, knows that everything Jesus said came about. The temple's been destroyed. The Romans have destroyed everything. It's incredibly evident that Luke interprets the fall of Jerusalem as directly related to its rejection of Jesus. And that Jesus laments even over Jerusalem is a clear revelation of his character. For a lament is complex in its nature. It's not just to cry. It's much more complex than that. And it may, not, it may be that not everyone is capable of such expression. Even I have wondered before, am I capable of lamenting? Do I know what it means to really lament something. So we look at Lamentations, and it's a miserable book, because it is full of sorrow and weeping. And I don't know that I've experienced anything in my life like that. A lament is a voice of love and profound caring, a vision of what could have been, and of grief over its loss, of tough hope painfully releasing the object of its hope, of personal responsibility and frustration, of sorrow and anger mixed, of accepted loss, but still with an energy to go on. It's much more than to cry. This is to weep. As as I read through that kind of definition, I, I think I experienced that before. Counseling kids who completely wrecked their lives, the hope of what could have been and having to accept the fact that it's no longer possible. I think of having hope for something I think of families that have lost kids having a hope that if they were kidnapped or taken, being returned, and then one day finding out that they're gone. That hope that was there that has to be released. A hope is one of the greatest things that we have. Jesus tells us repeatedly to hope in his second coming. We hope in the resurrection, and as we explored two weeks ago, if there was no resurrection, we are the most to be pitied. We have an absolutely insane hope. Well, lamenting is so much deeper, and for Jesus to lament over Jerusalem is to have a caring and concern for a people that I don't think that we can ever understand. And that same care and concern he has for us. Jesus knew that this was coming, and Luke is writing it after the fact. And we see in a very short period that Jerusalem ran out of time. Even as we're going to see over the next couple of chapters as they cry for his crucifixion. In verse 20, 45, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Luke has the shortest account of the temple cleansing of any of the other synoptic gospel writers. He doesn't focus on the cleansing of the temple in such a way that we would often experience, uh, and some people would push a theology of the temple no longer is important. Luke sustains the temple. Just as he sustains Jerusalem, it's important now, but it's not ultimate. He sustains the temple So Jesus purifies the temple in order that it can be a place of his own ministry of teaching. Not a blow announcing the end of the temple and its services. The temple is still necessary. Jesus has not paid the price yet. But Jesus needs a place to teach, and they're using this place incorrectly. Listen to this prophecy from Malachi chapter 3, 1-4. through It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi, the Levites, the priests. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. This is exactly what he did. 
And so what's the significance? Well, Jesus is acting in the name of God toward an institution of his own people, an institution dedicated to the worship of God. So Jesus already claimed to be God. He's already claimed to represent God. And here in his temple, where God's presence is dwelling, Jesus comes in with authority and acts in the name of God towards an institution of God. That's huge. That's a huge claim. <coughs> and we jump right out of that into him teaching daily, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking to destroy him. And it's the same language that we see when Satan says that he is seeking to destroy and devour those who are of the faith. So for the moment, though, Jesus is safe because all the people were hanging on his words. He had immense popularity with the people. But it won't take long. Things are coming. Things are going to change very quickly. So, is Jesus a uniter? Yes. Is he a uniter like we would think? No. Nothing about Jesus is like we would think. Luke has made that very clear so far. Understand that he sought us. He came here. Everything about Christmas is the incarnation, the virgin birth of God. Emmanuel, God with us, came here. And because he sought us and found us, if you are a believer, you must seek others. You must. The stakes are too high. And know that we're running out of time. If you are here and breathing, you still have time. There will be a day when you no longer breathe and you will be out of time. It will be too late. You will be destroyed. But Jesus is coming back too. And every day we live is one step closer to that. We don't know how much time we have left. We may not even make it to our deaths. We're running out of time. And we have a great commission. And we serve a risen king. Change is coming. Let's pray. Uh, and then I'll dismiss us for the day. Heavenly Father, God, we love you so much, and we are so thankful for what you have given us in your Son. And Father, as we walk through these Christmas seasons, these Christmas sermons, Father, as we look at your death, when we typically would look at your birth, we understand the depth of your mission. We understand the purpose of what you came for. And God, we understand that you came here not to unite in the way that we would, Father, to have one big happy family, but, Father, you came here with a purpose. And that even from a young age, you knew that one day you would hold the sins of all men. Father, we're so thankful for your Son. And in communion and in worship, let us remember how far you had to come to be with us. Father, the work that was required to pay for our sins, or the victory that we have in your Son, the life we can now live because of your faithfulness, because of your power, and Father, the trust that we can have in your blood, knowing that there's no wrath left for us, power of sin and death are defeated. And Father, as we walk through the next couple passages and see people who love you and claim to be of you, turn on you and cry for your death, Father, let us check to see if we're in that crowd. As we look at Peter and see how he forsakes you, oh God, that we not be so quick to judge him as it could easily be us. Father, that we not grow discouraged in watching you in the passion play having to die. And we not grow discouraged on day two when you're still in the grave. But Father, we look forward to your resurrection. We look forward to you completing the mission that you did here on earth. And Father, ultimately completing the mission that you have for this world. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Understanding that is the only way we can come to the throne. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The benediction for you guys. If you want to stand together.
comes from 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. But these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. You guys are dismissed.